Welcome to HHE Podcast, a random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge, find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. My name is Ryan Weir, and I'm here in the HHE studio again with the rubber ducky to my bubbly bath. It's Mr. Peter Goddard. Oh, I'm slightly nervous that I'm in the bath with you. You're my rubber ducky. So you're playing with me in the bath. That makes it substantially <laughs> worse. <laughs> now, Peter, for episode 74, the Dursalator gave us nine lives in Bangladesh during the Victorian era. That's 1837 to 1905. But Peter, I have a bad feline about this episode, and I'm worried it might turn out to be a catastrophe. Oh so can you assure me that it will be pawsome and music to my ears? <laughs> I look forward to these every time, Ryan. <laughs> but yes, sir, we are going to South Asia to visit a country with thousands of years of history. We're going to discover rickshaw art and majestic tigers and mighty mangroves, and we're going to discover some remarkable characters, including the musical mystics who sing philosophy, the woman who wrote of flying cars and the scientist who almost invented the radio. Welcome to the land of rivers. Welcome to Bengal. Welcome to Bangladesh. My goodness, I am excited, Peter. Genuinely don't really know much about Bangladesh. So this is going to be a fantastic episode for me. I feel like I'm going to be enriched with knowledge. Absolutely will. So let's get started. Bangladesh is officially the People's Republic of Bangladesh, and it's a country in South Asia. So if you know where India is, the sticky down bit over in uh, South Asia. I do. Just to the right of India, the east, you will find Bangladesh. Now, in fact, Bangladesh has a border with India to the west. To the north, it borders India, and the eastern border is with India. Wait, what? <laughs> so it's, when you look at it on the map, it's really peculiar because basically it looks like a bite has been taken out of India and it kind of wraps round Bangladesh. There's also a little bit of border with Myanmar, but the border with India is 4,156 kilometres, 2,500 miles or thereabouts. To visualise where we are, it's a green, verdant, low-lying country. And when you look at pictures, the overwhelming impression you get is flatness and greenery. Lush place, basically. Am I thinking Jungle Book, that sort of thing? Uh, I think that's probably not a bad idea. Uh, and it's hardly surprising that it's so verdant when you learn that it's home to about seven or 800 rivers, hence the land of rivers. Okay. This is a country that's made up of soil and silt that's actually washed down from the Himalayas. But it's more or less a massive floodplain, which obviously can cause problems because it does uh, very frequently suffer from flooding and uh, these rivers burst in their banks and they have a regular flood season as well oh wow okay poor guys yeah it is they, they, they suffer but the flip side is it's very fertile so it's, it's a win and a lose i guess at the same time Mm. Now, it's pretty small, especially when you see it next to massive India. Its area is about 148,000 square kilometres, 57,000 square miles. And that is about 26% the size of a France. So you need four Bangladeshis to make one France. OK, I thought for some reason it would be bigger than that. Well, in some ways it is because it's small in physical size, but it's pretty big in people. The population of Bangladesh is about 169 million people. 169 million all living along the riverbanks. Well, it's it's mostly riverbank in fairness as a country. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, France has got 68 million people. So you're talking about a place quarter the size of France with well over double the population. In fact, Bangladesh is the eighth most populous country in the world. And that's ranking it alongside these massive countries like Brazil and Russia. It's this small country, but really densely populated. Wow. People they have. Mm -hmm. Now, 98% of the population is ethnically Bengali. And that's because the region that is both Bangladesh and also there's a territory in India called West Bengal. Together, that region has historically been Bengal. The word Bangladesh comes from the word Desh, which is Sanskrit for country, and Bangla, which is the historic name for Bengal. So Bengal country, Bangladesh. Okay. The flag is a nice, simple one. It's a red circle on a field of dark green. Now, I've seen this flag, and it looks like one of those optical illusions. It's sort of like the red dot in the middle is going to move around or see a word appear. <laughs> That's right. There is a bit of that actually deliberate, though, because the circle, if when you look at it, is slightly offset it's not in the center of the flag it's set slightly to the left of center and the idea behind that is so it appears to be central when you account for the flagpole that it flies against 
It's not just to annoy fastidious people. Yeah, I suppose it could be very uh, difficult for the OCD amongst us, but uh, too bad. <laughs> You're going to have to deal with it. Uh, now, there's some debate, but people say the red is the sun and the green is the landscape, which is hardly groundbreaking in our vexillology <laughs> experience, is it? Uh, but it was designed in 1970 by a group of student activists at Dakar University. Dakar is the capital of Bangladesh. Are they student activists in the sense that they're in training to become activists? No, they were students who were being activists, very active activists at the time. Right. Okay. I was just wondering where I could sign up. (laughs) To become a practice. (laughs) I'd like to learn to activist, please. (laughs) Now, National Anthem, I know you're interested. I am, very much so. I don't like to spoil a National Anthem, but I've got to say, I love this one. I like to think of it more as a national theme tune than a National Anthem, but uh, let's have a listen. It's got a lovely swing to it, I think. If I heard this, I wouldn't say it was Bangladesh, though. Well, it's actually called Amar Sonar Bangla, which translates as My Golden Bengal. So this is the instrumental. It does have lyrics, and they were written by their Nobel Prize-winning Bangladeshi writer Rabindranath Tagore. And he's actually the first non-European to ever win a Nobel Prize. Oh, nice. Good for him. All right. There it is. My Golden Bengal. That was an unusual one. It was a cracker, wasn't it? I very much enjoyed that one. Now, I've got some Bangladesh facts for you, Ryan. And for these, I have to thank Reddit user Marine Can't Draw, who went well out of his way or her way to share these with me. First is rickshaw art. This is an iconic aspect of Bangladesh, apparently. By rickshaw, we mean those three-wheel bicycles you get. They have a sort of canopy, two seats at the back, somebody pedalling at the front like Fury, and you see them in London, certainly, as tourist vehicles. Okay. So the drivers decorate the canopy and actually the whole rest of the bike as well with paintings, apparently. This started in the 1950s where they put pictures of movie stars on their canopies. (laughs) Nice. Uh, And then gradually people branched out. Now you see flowers and animals and patterns. Uh, And you kind of get different styles in different regions. And this developed as a kind of folk art, a street art, you could call it, for Bangladeshis. Do you think we could get ourselves on a Bangladeshi rickshaw? Well, it's funny you should say that because partly it's difficult because it's a bit of a dying art. So one artist, Rafiqul Islam, said, Rickshaw art has fallen so far from grace. The rickshaw owners nowadays, and you can almost hear the sneer in his voice, this, just write down their names and mobile numbers on the back of the vehicle. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's less creative. He adds that there's only 15 rickshaw painters actively working today, apparently. I'm going to reach out to one of them and try and get ourselves on a rickshaw. I'm glad you said that because there is one artist called Biscuit Abir who's a Bangladeshi artist who's keeping the art alive slightly by taking the style of rickshaw art and applying it to items like household objects, kettles, glasses and things like that. Neat. Yeah, so you can actually check his work out under the brand Biscuit Factory. That's B-I-S-K-U-T. You can find him Mm -hmm. on Instagram. I'm sure he's in Twitter and other places as well. But if you wanted to reach out, I suggest you do so. Biscuit Factory will probably be open for business. Now, more Bangladesh facts. Did you know that Bangladesh is the home to the largest mangrove forest on Earth? Wait, mangrove or mango? No, mangrove, not mango. Uh, (laughs) Sorry to disappoint. I love mango. Ah, no, mangroves. (laughs) You know, the swampy, watery, with the the tree roots kind of sticking up everywhere. Oh, yeah, with crocodiles and horrible things lurking in them. All sorts of things lurking. This is very true. This area is known as the Sundarbans. It's kind of a soggy delta where the rivers Ganges, Brahmaputra and Meghna all flow into the Bay of Bengal. It's a massive mangrove forest, so you can imagine what they look like. And these are about 540 square miles, 1,400 square kilometres. That's quite big. It is quite big. And actually four different sections of it have been declared UNESCO World Heritage Sites. But if fear of reprisals from UNESCO aren't enough to stop you messing with the place, it is also one of the homes of the Bengal tiger. I love the Bengal tiger. That's the big one, right? It's the crack. About 250 kilos, 550 pounds of killing machine. So that's like a baby grand piano with claws and teeth sneaking up on you in the mangroves. A baby grand piano would not be able to sneak up. It'd be like... I take your point. It's a a muted baby grand piano. (laughs) I love it though. They've got Bengal tiger. This really is Jungle Book. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Is there a bear that like eats ants? There might well be, but uh, I didn't look too deep into the connection with the various animals of the Jungle Book. But of course, in the world of great and impressive animals, man is usually the problem and the tiger is considered endangered, unfortunately. Hmm. But in some unusually good animal news, there was a March 2022 report in the New Indian Express, which reported that the Wildlife Institute of India said 
census, found 96 tigers in the Delta, which is up from 76 in 2014. So they're, they're making a bit of a comeback. But it is a bit of a worry, though, because that uh, that number of tigers is slightly larger than the carrying capacity of the area. So now, basically, the fear is animals will start to move out of the area into areas where there are more in the way of munchable villages, and that might be causing a problem. So in summary, if you do live in the Sundarbans or around, close those windows at night. Now, finally, Marine Can't Draw, the Reddit user who helped me out, said, uh, he said, Bengali's favourite pastime is drinking milk tea and reading a book while it's raining outside, eating a warm plate of kichuri, which is rice cooked with lentils, paired with lime, fried eggplants and achar, pickled mangoes, plums or olives. While it's raining, it just hits different, they say. Just hits different. What a lovely way of putting yeah, it. Yeah, it sounds amazing, doesn't it? Now, Ryan, unfortunately, I can't cook and uh, I'm not much of a tea maker either. So we're going to have to sample something a little bit different. Mango! <laughs> no, not a mango. Now, the country is majority Muslim. 91% of them are Muslims. There's about 8% Hindu and a smidge of others. That means it's not a big alcohol drinking culture, as you know. Okay. As Marine suggested, they're more likely to be drinking tea. But I didn't think that should stop us, Ryan. <laughs> of course not. Why would it stop us drinking booze? Why would it? So, so this is, I did some digging, quite a lot of digging. And this is what I discovered on my quest for products of Bangladesh. Right, check it out. I'm so excited. So tell the listeners, Ryan, what we've got here. We have Bangra beer from Bangladesh. Well, here's the thing, Ryan. As you can yeah. see, it's Bangla beer. You can see there's the kind of Sanskrit-esque, I guess that's Bangladeshi writing on the label. Uh, it's got patterns that are very evocative of the area. And it says on the back, the temples of Dinajpur, the tea gardens of Silhek, I think. Ooh, it's so Bangladesh, isn't it? And then you go to the bottom of the label and in very yeah. tiny writing, it says... Made in the UK. It's not Bangladeshi at all. I've been had, Ryan. <laughs> it is, in fact, not at all connected to Bangladesh. And I have been hoodwinked by the internet. <laughs> well, while you were talking, I've been drinking it and it's delicious. Ah, well, good. So what we're going to do, though, is use this imposter beer and we're going to toast mm-hmm. each of our sections. At the end of each section, we'll have a little toast. So let's start with a toast to Bangladesh to get us going. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Pete. Wow, what's with all that cricket gear? Well, you see, I've been watching Bangladesh playing in the Cricket World Cup, and they've inspired me to join the local cricket team. Wow, but you've never played cricket before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's why I've turned the backyard into a practice pitch. Have you? Yeah. And to help me with my batting, I've bought a top-of-the-range bowling machine. Hmm, well, that's surprisingly sensible of you. Yeah, but the only real problem is it keeps breaking my cricket bats. Really? That is weird. Yeah, well, I mean, the balls do weigh 16 pounds. 16 pounds? That's like the same weight as a... Oh, Ryan. Are you using bowling balls? Yeah, of course. It's a bowling machine. Oh, Ryan, you're an idiot. Am I? It came with a free pair of shoes. Well, that was fantastic, Pete. I do love a Bangladesh fact. But do you know what I love more? What's that, Brian? <laughs> it's history. Well, good news. I've got great news, in fact. Now, it is a big challenge talking about the history of Bangladesh, because whilst today it is a country separate from India, you don't have to go back too far before the main geographical entity, which is Bengal, was actually its own place. So Bangladesh plus West Bengal in India today was kind of a unified place. It's been part of India. It's been part of loads of different places. So there hasn't isn't really a very clear and clean history of Bangladesh per se. Okay. But we can say that there is a little bit of early man action. There's quite a lot of debate as to when exactly people arrived in the area. And apparently one of the challenges is that archaeology is quite difficult because the rivers keep changing course and all the the soil, I guess, must wash things away when you flood every five minutes. So Early man liked to base himself on a river, right? On the actual riverbank. And if the riverbank then moves or gets submerged, then a lot of your evidence disappears. Exactly. And there there is evidence that uh, there was early man, but there's just some debate about the specifics of when exactly there arrived. Now I'm going to just do a massive leap now Ryan because I could spend about 20 minutes saying this was this dynasty then there was another dynasty but broadly speaking empires came and went in the area. They started sort of alternating Hindu and Buddhist kingdoms the ebb and flow of power you could call it and uh, rather than bore you with a long list of different dynasties that happened I will skip Mm -hmm. over the, the headlines I'll add that eventually in the 13th century the Hindu and Buddhist alternating dynasties were replaced by an Islamic dynasty which came in from Afghan 
Afghan invaders. That was in the 13th century. And then in the 1500s, we'll kind of skip straight to there. The area fell under the control of the Mughal Empire, which you may have heard of. No, tell me about the Mughals. Uh, well, they were the people who were in power when the British arrived and the British kind of had dealings with them when they came into the colonial period. But I'm getting ahead of myself slightly. Uh, in 1517, guess who installed an outpost at Chittagong? The Portuguese! It certainly is. They traded and preached there. They were briefly kicked out for piracy, but more problematic for them than being kicked out as pirates was the arrival to this fairly wealthy part of the world of pretty much the rest of Europe, who all sort of thought, this is pretty tasty, I want a bit of this. So what you mm. got was the British, the Dutch, the French, all angling for a piece of the action. A load more trading settlements get established. But interestingly, it's not by nations trying to settle, it's by companies that are set up to sort of act as kind of colonisers, I guess. So you notably have heard of the British East India Company. Of course, yeah. Yeah, so unsurprisingly, trouble starts between the British and the locals. An ambitious young man named Robert Clive took a bunch of troops to calm things down with lots and lots of guns. Uh, And in Mm. 1757, Clive was victorious in the Battle of Plassey. And this is often considered the start of what I would call full fat British colonialism in India. (laughs) Full fat colonialism. The whole deal. Just as bad for your health. Well, indeed, very much so. Worse, I would argue. Mm. Uh, But yeah, there's a school of thought that says for Bangladesh, it was just another occupier, really, because it had had such a long history of being was part of the Mughal Empire, it's part of these varying moving empires before it. So it's kind of, to some people, really just a change of management rather than a whole, oh, we've just been colonised. Now, Ryan, it might not surprise you to learn that the period of being ruled by a company was not a good one for the area. Yes, because often the companies are generally interested in their profit and not necessarily in the place that they're in or the people. That is correct. The British East India Company absolutely loved profit. They couldn't get enough of it, Mm. quite literally. And it's quite telling that one of the Hindi words that's become an English word today is loot. Oh, really? Yeah. So I think that tells you something, doesn't it? (laughs) Gosh. So yeah, the East India Company representatives basically acted as the worst kind of tax collector. They didn't have a sense of stewardship of the area. They just wanted to plunder effectively. They continued Mm. to demand taxes even in 1769, which was an important year because famine ravaged the land. And there are estimates that as many as 10 million people died and still they demanded their taxes. Oh, really? Yeah. Come on. But, you know, on the plus side, Clive became the richest self-made man in Europe. So, wow. Bad Impressive, news. Clive. <laughs> <laughs> you can't make an omelette and all that. <laughs> so basically, India was being drained rather than ruled or managed. So perhaps unsurprisingly, in 1857, there was an uprising known as the Sepoy Mutiny. A Sepoy is an Indian soldier, so an infantryman, I think. So okay. what happened there was rumours went round that the cartridges the soldiers were given for their guns were coated in a cow or a pig fat. Okay. That's not brilliant on its own for Muslim and Hindu people who mm. are very keen on the cow and or pig. And you make that worse. When I say the cartridge, this is a cartridge where you have to bite the end off and pour the gunpowder into where it needs to go. Oh, old school guns. Yeah, yeah, old school guns. So now, in fact, not only does it have this fat, you're now consuming that fat in direct contravention with your beliefs. Now, whether that's true or not, doesn't really matter because the rumour took hold and rebellion rose up. Soldiers marched on Delhi, dissent spread, and the East India Company, perhaps unsurprisingly, reacted by brutally putting down the uprising. Mm, as they do. But there were consequences to this. After this, basically, the running of India was taken away from the East India Company, and this was the start of direct rule by the British government, which you would know as the British Raj. It's the uh, curry house around the corner from me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Lovely Boona. <laughs> So British control continues into the 20th century. Uh, in the 20th century, there was obviously a large growth in the independence movement, the passive resistance of Mahatma Gandhi you will be familiar with. It was decided eventually that the British Raj would give up control of India in 1947. So rather than create a whole independent India, it was decided to divide the Hindu and Muslim areas into different countries. Okay. So the main body of what we know as India today was the Hindu areas and the Muslim areas became Pakistan. But that doesn't mean the Pakistan we know today. What Pakistan was, at that time was the Pakistan we know today, which is on the northwest of India, and Bangladesh, which is on the east side of India. So these two areas were one country known as Pakistan, East Pakistan and West Pakistan, respectively, but they were separated by over a thousand miles. Oh, wow, really? So they weren't connected at all? No, totally. Yet still one country? Still one country. So essentially it was like, well, you're all Muslims, you're a country now, even though culturally, linguistically, they were very different places. I mean, at some point there was a 
group of people sat around a table with a map on it and nobody pointed that out as maybe a potential issue. Yeah, I mean, there are, there, there, I mean, that would be an interesting thing to talk about in itself, but we're not going to. But yes, I mean, it's such a classic thing of, ah, that'll do. Uh, anyway, see you. Good luck, everyone. So it yeah, will not surprise be you fine. to learn that it did not end very well. Mm. So East Pakistan, or Bangladesh as we know it today, was a bit of a poor cousin. Most of the administration, most of the military were in West Pakistan. Most of the development and money was over there. And also, just to rub it in, the national language of Pakistan was Urdu, whereas Bengali, the language of Bangladesh, had no status at all, which really coalesced protests and made students activists. Yeah. Remember those chaps? I do. So basically, there were protests. There's a uprising, I would say. And this was followed by, again, unsurprisingly, suppression by West Pakistan this time. So Bangladesh started a non-cooperation movement in 1971, and the West Pakistan military showed up to deal with it. Right. So there was a little bit of fighting. Pakistan had the upper hand, but then India decided to get involved, possibly because they weren't massively keen on the fact that they already had 10 million refugees coming over their borders. Right. So India then invaded Pakistan, and then Pakistan went, okay, we give up. And in 1971, as a result of all of this, the country of Bangladesh was born. And they've been all been friends ever since. It's been an absolute mill pond of a place since that time, yes. Now, again, unsurprisingly, not an easy start. There was, again, massive flooding in 1974 and another famine, which was considered one of the worst of the 20th century. Then there's a selection of military coups, counter coups, caretaker governments, which I won't bore you with the details with. The current government, though, is dominated by the Awami League, and it's been in place since 2009, most recently winning a two. 2018 vote, which was an election mired in violence with accusations of corruption abounding. My God, there's a lot of violence going on, isn't there? A lot of blood being spilled. Yeah, politically, it seems to be a rough old place. But let's look on the bright side. They've got fertile soil. They've got increasing numbers of tigers and they've got loads and loads of people. So they must be able to do something with that. So our next toast, here's hoping for good things for the future of Bangladesh. Whatever happened to Clive? Clive, he did very well, set up an estate in Wales and I suspect died absolutely delighted with how things had turned out. Ah, uh, oh well. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm ready for the next section now. I'm putting that in. <laughs> <laughs> Don't show them behind the curtain. <laughs> Just give them the seamless experience. Attention, people of Bengal. We, the representatives of Her Majesty Queen Victoria, Empress of India, have excellent news. We've successfully acquired everything we need from you, so we'll be off now. Thank you for your cooperation. But before we go, we thought we'd leave you a gift. We've just finished redrawing the map of South Asia. We have partitioned the land and assigned you all to, and we think you'll love this, Pakistan. That's right, you are now part of mighty Pakistan, filled with people just like you. Now, I know what you're thinking. Pakistan is 2,000 kilometers away, and they speak a different language. But you know, you're all Muslims, aren't you? So we thought, why not just put you all in the same place? It's another elegant and efficient solution from your former rulers, the Benevolent Empire of Great Britain. Sorry about all the abuse. Best of luck. Bye. Okay, Peter, tell me what nine lives means. Well, our topic is nine lives, as you say, and it refers to an old wives tale that a cat has nine lives, which I didn't know this, but I guess it comes from a proverb, which I'd never heard in full before. And apparently this goes, a cat has nine lives. For three, he plays. For three, he strays. And for the last three, he stays. Huh. So it's not about how many lives they have, like they're being klutzy and dangerous and jumping off things. Well, I mean, to be honest, that particular proverb I'd never heard before. And the, the websites I was finding on all used exactly the same form of words, which is always a bit suspicious. So is that a real proverb? I'm not 100% sure, but I, I'd buy that. You play, you stray, and then you stay. But we do know for sure that by Shakespeare's time, a cat having nine lives was definitely well established. So in Romeo and Juliet, Tybalt asks... What wouldst thou have with me? And Mercutio replies, Good king of cats, nothing but one of your nine lives. Such a card, that Shakespeare. Hilarious. Cracks me up. So as you say, it's my opinion that nine lives is probably related to the way that cats seem to be death-defying creatures. So that sense of cats getting away with things, I think is uh, probably where nine lives comes from and what it means. But how to relate it to this podcast? This was actually quite challenging. And the obvious thing to do was to do nine lives. That's what I'm expecting. Yeah, well, I'm not going to do that because it would only give us three minutes per person. So unless you want to hear me say (laughs) so-and-so was born, they wrote a poem, then they died. that's not really going to be very interesting. So what I've decided to do to take the three stages of the cat's nine lives and tell you three stories of interesting and significant people, one who plays, one who strays and one who stays. That is awesome. So here we go. Are you ready for your first person? Yes! (laughs) 
Well, I'm glad you're excited. So here we go. It's a me. Wahoo! Well, congratulations, super stereotypical Italian plumber man. I see you made it all the way across my land through traps and monsters and weird little pipes all the way to me, the final boss. <laughs> I'm here for the princess. Wahoo! The princess is going nowhere with you, my little friend. <laughs> I will fight you! Wahoo! Well, if it comes down to a fight, you would probably win. But the thing is, the princess, she just doesn't want to be with you, super stereotypical Italian plumber man. I not understand. Wahoo! She she doesn't like you. But everyone loves a super stereotypical Italian plumber man. Wahoo! Not everyone, and it's not about you. I will always win. Wahoo! A relationship isn't something you can win. But I can run and jump and give her the stars. Wahoo! She's not interested in stars and sparkly things. She likes theatre and jazz and coffee. Look, the point is, I listen to her needs. What do you offer her? Just a me. Super stereotypical Italian plumber man. Wahoo! Just you, eh? And I hate to ask, but are you on the mushrooms again? Yeah, I thought so. Now, listen, you've lost this one. Why don't you just move on? Maybe focus on the plumbing. You can make a really good living out of that. Just don't bother the princess again. But I love the princess. Wahoo! You say you love her, but if that's true, you'll let her go. You'll break my heart. Wahoo! How many times are we going to have to do this? I've got a nine lives! Wahoo! <sighs> Fine, let's go. Alright, Peter, tell me about life number one. Life number one. Well, we're going to learn about a ball. A ball? That's not a ball, as in a bouncy ball. That is a ball, B-A-U-L, like Paul with a B. Oh, okay. Yeah, so a ball is like a kind of wandering minstrel slash philosopher that you find in Bangladesh. They wander from place to place singing songs, and to that extent they are musicians, but they are also religious figures. Some of them are Hindu-ish, some of them are Muslim-ish, but they're kind of outsiders and they're their own versions of these religions. So a ball is basically a wandering minstrel who's wearing a patchwork of religion i suppose you could say and you can recognize a ball by the long white tunics that they wear and they wear white lungis which is a kind of men's skirt tied around the waist or mm-hmm. if it's a woman uh, and they can be women is they would wear a white sari they carry jolas which are kind of cloth shoulder bags and they use those they collect the arms that they rely on for their survival because they just wander around going i'll give you some wisdom if you give me a sandwich i guess <laughs> <laughs> now it probably says something about how they're perceived because it's believed by some that the origin of the word ball comes from the sanskrit vatul or possibly vyaku which mean respectively mad or wild and bewildered oh really okay that's great yeah so essentially a ball is a wandering religious musical nut job yeah <laughs> my favorite kind of nut job yeah, exactly they wander around they play their songs on an ektara an ektara is a musical instrument with a gourd body and a bamboo neck and just one string one string one string do you want to hear it do you want to hear an ektara playing do you want to hear a ball doing his thing yeah i do okay absolutely are they still going now? Yeah, you still have balls today. All right, three, two, one, go. I will remind you, one string. I love it. That's great. Did it right for a guy with one string, didn't he? Yeah, that's good. Actually, I'd give him a sandwich for that. <laughs> Actually, I'd give him half a sandwich. Half I'd a share sandwich. my sandwich. <laughs> what if he did a second <laughs> song for you? Too late because <laughs> I've already eaten half a sandwich. Now, that that's balls, Ryan. But we're here to talk about a specific ball. Um, probably the most famous ball that Bangladesh has ever seen. Oh, I thought you were going to say the ball of all. The, ball. <laughs> <laughs> the bell of the balls, you might say. He was born in 1772 and he lived apparently until he was around 117. So he died in 1890. Smack dab in our time period. And his name was Lalon, also known as Lalon Shah. Lalon Shah. That's a nice name. It's lovely, isn't it? Now, 
Now, we don't know too much about Lalon's origins, and part of that is a little bit deliberate because the Ball themselves are kind of outcasts, and Lalon Shah in particular had no truck at all with religious division or caste separations. So it makes sense that he wouldn't talk about his origins because he is who he is, not he's not come from this family or that family or this caste or this religion. He thought all that was absolute nonsense. So it's perhaps not surprising that we don't know much about he, his background. But it is believed that Lalon was born into a Hindu family, and it's said that while on a journey, he fell victim to smallpox. Oh no. Oh no. Uh, and when this happened, he was abandoned by his companions. Well, I mean, I get it. Yeah, I, this I isn't too. a time where medicine is there to help you, is it? Yeah, so it kind of looks like he's going to die, but then he's discovered by a Muslim fukia. Sorry, what? <laughs> a Muslim fukia, uh, fakir, f-a-k-i-r, fakir. It's, uh, right, it's fukia, is it? Is that how you say it? I, I guess that's. I did a look up how to say it. Okay. On the website. So uh, I'm hoping I haven't been misled. I've no, I've, I've just always read it as fakir. Yeah, so have I, but I then I realised I'd. I think I'd never actually heard it said. <laughs> so anyway, he is discovered by a Muslim fakir who took him up and nursed him to health. So Lalon recovers and he returns home and promptly denounced by his own family for consorting with Muslims. Oh, he's having a rough ride. <laughs> it is not a great time. So Lalon goes, well, that's rubbish, isn't it? So he goes off and he decides to become a ball. He finds and studies under a guru until he's ready to head off on his own and sing his songs and preach his philosophy through, over his lifetime, thousands of songs that he's said to have written. Cool. Now, a word of caution here. The ball tradition didn't actually include writing songs down. So we do not have Lalon's big book of songs. What we've got is the oral tradition and then people who eventually, roughly the 19th century probably, put his songs to paper or the things that were reputed to be his songs. So you can't be exactly sure which ones he wrote, but you know there are some where the, the clues are there, I think. So is he nomadic or like would I go and seek him out? I, well, a bit of both actually, because I think he set up a, a place, a head office, I guess, towards the end of his <laughs> life. But uh, yeah, I think a, a bit of both in I guess uh, certainly they are generally described as wandering minstrel type characters so I think okay. traveling around is part of the deal but in his body of work, we can detect a few themes. And one of the main ones is his absolute rejection of this distinction of religion and caste, like I've said. So I'm going to give you a bit of Lalon. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Everyone asks, Lalon, what's your religion in this world? Lalon answers, how does religion look? I've never laid eyes on it. Some wear malas, which are Hindu rosaries, around their neck. Some tasbis, Muslim rosaries. And so people say they've got different religions. But do you bear the sign of your religion when you come or when you go out? Meaning when you're born and when you die? Oh, I thought you meant like going out to the shops. <laughs> no, no. So basically he's saying you know, all of these affectations of this person wears their beads around the neck and this one wears them around the wrist or whatever it might be are merely earthly affectations. And actually your religion is inside you, uh, not something you wear or a club that you join. So I like this guy. He's cool, right? So rules and ritual basically out. Um, but instead, apparently, balls tend to focus on what's known as deha tata, which is truth in the body. So a little bit like tantrism, they've got a sort of spirituality related to the physical rather than the, the just the metaphysical or the mind. So what the balls think is that the body is essentially a microcosm of the universe. And because everything is contained within the universe, then you can worship through your microcosm of the universe, i.e. your body. So this doesn't mean just doing what you want and just eating crisps all day. It means focus and control of the body, I guess. Mmm, crisps. <laughs> well he has one song he's got one line in one song which i found quite poignant i don't know why i like it so much but i like it so i'm sharing it with you he says after how many days will i be united with the person inside my own heart oh man that feels like an instagram quote it really does doesn't it i might get that tattooed on me <laughs> but in chinese script for some reason yeah <laughs> Now, over his life, Lalon, as I say, is said to have composed nearly 2,500 songs. Some say 10,000. Some say, certainly say it's hundreds. It's nobody saying he only wrote two hits and was done. But he was very popular. He developed a community of his own disciples. And this enables the tradition to spread as more and more balls picked up instruments and continued the ball tradition. Singing his songs. Singing his songs. And I guess I would imagine they adapted as they went. But Lalon died, though, at a ripe old age in 1890. But he was by no means forgotten. As well as his disciples, the beat poet Allen Ginsberg, you may be familiar with. I've heard the name. Yeah, he wrote a poem called Howl. He was one of the beat poets, big a big deal in the, the 60s poetry scene in America. And he wrote a poem in 1992 called After Lalon, in which he talks about giving up the allures of the world. Hmm. And when was he born? Lalon. Yeah. He was born in 1772 and died in 1890, allegedly at the age of 117. 
There may be some yeah. flex in those dates. Okay. My maths isn't great, but even I had to question that one. <laughs> I know. Uh, yeah, some might... Th- I'm not sure there was a copy of his birth certificate floating around anywhere, but he knocked on a bit, I think it's fair to say. Okay. And in fact, the ball tradition, as you rightly asked, is continuing. And in 2005, the ball tradition of Bangladesh as a whole was included on the list of the oral and intangible heritage of humanity by UNESCO. Oh, good. Quite right, too. So that's your first life, Lalon Shash. We have a toast to Lalon. He'd like it. He loved a bit of uh, religion through the body. Cheers. Oh, that was a good one. <laughs> little double clink. Right, this is the one who strays. So Lalon was the one who plays for obvious reasons. This is the Mm -hmm. one who strays. And the next person we're going to talk about is a remarkable woman named Begum Rakea. Now, Begum okay. is a, an honorific, so it's like Lady Rakea, you'll find. But sometimes it's kind of morphed into a surname for people. So you might meet a lot of people called Begum, but it originated as just a word to mean lady as a title almost. So okay. she was born Rakea Sakawat Hussain, in fact, on the 9th of December, 1880. In our time period. Yeah, a bit towards the end, but uh, definitely safely in there. Uh, she was born to a Muslim family in Rangpur, Bengal Presidency, which was the area which is now in northern Bangladesh. Now, on the one hand, Rakea was lucky. She was born into a pretty prestigious family her ancestors were serving people who served in the military and in the judiciary during the Mughal regime and her, her father was a zamindar which a is a brilliant name <laughs> and b is as kind of a provincial noble like a man with an estate hence the lady well quite but i think the honorific was awarded for her achievements rather than just being born into a family all oh, right now on the other hand while she's lucky in the fact that she's relatively moneyed and relatively well off she's unlucky because she was born a woman at a time and a place when that brought significant limitations name a time when it hasn't well, yes, it's a, it's an ongoing conflict, isn't it? And we can only do what we can to level that playing field. Now, she was eager to study. She was a smart lady, but she was only allowed to learn Arabic so that she could read the Quran. That was about the extent of education that her father wanted her to have. Meanwhile, her brothers get sent off to study in college and they can study Bangla or Bengali and English and various other things. So yay for them. Mm. Now, she thought this was pretty unfair, but luckily for her, so did her older brother, Ibrahim, who sneakily taught her and her sister English and Bangladesh at night. Ibrahim's the best. He did good, didn't he? Now, at the age of, and I've seen two ages here, she was either 16 or 18, I'm not clear which, Rakea was married to a 38-year-old magistrate. Oh, okay. (laughs) Quite the age I guess that happens. (laughs) Yeah, that happens too. But again, she was slightly lucky here because her new husband was a pretty liberal guy and he encouraged his wife, actually, to continue studying and to start writing as well. Okay, great. So she chose to write in the Bengali language and she wrote on the topic of female rights and empowerment. Wow, this is amazing. Yeah, she's... 1880, well, where are we now? 1900? 1880, she was born, so about 1900. Well, in fact, the process really starts in 1902 because she's writing stories at that time and poems, and her work is now starting to appear in ladies' magazines. So this is where she starts to build a bit of profile. Fantastic. Now, in 1905, it was a big red-letter year for her because if you'd have purchased, Ryan, your usual copy, you've probably subscribed already, but uh, if you'd have purchased a copy of the Indian Ladies' Magazine... Big subscriber. It wasn't what you thought it was, was it? (laughs) (laughs) You thought it was a catalogue, but no. I did, yeah. (laughs) Yeah? But yeah, if you'd have bought the Indian Ladies magazine in 1905, you could have read Rakea's first major work. And this blew my mind. It's a sci-fi story. What? (laughs) A sci-fi story? A sci-fi story. I kid you not. Wow. Okay. It's great. Um, I want to know what it's about now. Well, I will tell you. Don't worry about that. This is a story called Sultana's Dream. Okay. So in it, an unnamed narrator, so Sultana being a title again rather than a name. Or a dried fruit. Well, indeed. The unnamed narrator, who we're going to call Sultana, wakes up to discover that she's awake in a strange new world. And she meets a lady who explains, quote, This is Ladyland, free from sin and harm. Virtue herself reigns here. 
Nice. I want to go to Ladyland. Well, you kind of do because it's a it's a basically a role reversal world that's run by women. This isn't sci-fi. This is fantasy. Oh, <laughs> yeah. We'll tweet that later. See how that works out for you. <laughs> so as she walks along, she she notices people are staring at her, and she asks her companion, "Why is that?" And the woman says, "Oh, the women say you look very mannish." And Sultana replies, "Mannish?" said I. "What do you mean by that?" And her companion says, "They mean you are shy and timid, like men." Oh. Role ah, reversal. It's very clever. So these shy and timid men of Ladyland are basically restricted in the same way as women are in reality, in, in the reality that Begum was living in. So basically, they have a male purder. Do you know what purder is? No, sir. So purder is basically seclusion of the sexes. So there's sort of two major aspects of it. One is covering up the women, usually with veils. But also in buildings, you would have areas called zanana, which would be women-only restricted access areas, uh, where a man would keep a harem in, in other cultures. So the zanana is your, your secluded area. But in Sultana's dream, it's the men who are hidden away like this, and they discuss why. And this is a slightly edited version, but it's still a quote. So uh, where are the men, I asked her, in their proper places where they ought to be? Pray let me know what you mean by their proper places. Oh, I see my mistake. You cannot know our customs, as you were never here before. We shut our men indoors. <laughs> Just as we are kept in the Zanana, exactly so. How funny, I burst into a laugh. Just to Sarah laugh too. But dear Sultana, how unfair it is to shut in the harmless women and let loose the men. Why, replies Sultana, it is not safe for us to come out of the Zanana as we are naturally weak. Well, her companion has an answer to that. Men who do or at least are capable of doing no end of mischief are let loose and the innocent women shut up in the Zanana. How can you trust those untrained men out of doors? Why do you allow yourselves to be shut up? Well, because it cannot be helped as they are stronger than women. Well, a lion is stronger than a man, but it does not enable him to dominate the human race. You have neglected the duty you owe to yourselves and you have lost your natural rights by shutting your eyes to your own interests. Wow. Yeah, honestly, it's punchy stuff and I love it. It's really awesome. Boom, feminism. I thought it was going to be like a story with a few illusions and a hint that perhaps there's, things could be different. But no, she comes out strong and goes, yeah, why would you do that? Why would you allow... I think the one of the other things they say is if a lunatic escapes from the asylum, do men lock themselves away or do they lock up the lunatic? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. When you said sci-fi though, I was expecting robots and stuff. Well, I'm glad you asked that because this is quite the utopia that the ladies have managed to put together. Frankly, I would love to live there myself. The companion explains, I finish my work in two hours. What? Yeah, in two hours? How do you manage, says Sultana? In our land, the officers, magistrates, for instance, work seven hours daily. Her companion replies, and this is going to resonate with you, Ryan, I know. I've seen some of them doing their work. Do you think they work all the seven hours? Certainly they do. No, dear Sultana, they do not. <laughs> they dawdle away their time in smoking. Some smoke two or three cheroots during the office time. They talk much about their work, but do little. I don't know why you think that I would resonate with that. How did you like that? But to, to talk to your robots, she discovers this society is basically very scientifically advanced. Women have focused on science rather than fighting. It's run largely by solar power. It's got sprinkler oh. systems to keep everyone cool in the summer. And they've even got a heat ray that they can deploy in battle in case the neighbouring kingdoms, which are run by men, get the wrong idea. They can zap you with a laser. And this was 1905? Yeah. I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? Solar power, lasers. Well, towards the end of the tale, the narrator and her friend jump into a flying car wait what <laughs> for real they jump into okay, a flying it really is sci-fi it really is honestly i uh, was i absolutely loved it it's not a very long story and we'll put a link to the story in the notes because it's a, a short read but it's an absolute gripper i loved it i love the idea of a car in 1905 a flying car like, from 1905 must have been such a rickety old thing yeah i was really hoping it would end with where we're going we don't need roads but uh unfortunately no they didn't do that uh in fact she wakes up and it was all a dream a beautiful dream but yeah it's a great story i really enjoyed reading it it's really short like i say definitely check out the link it'll make a feminist of anyone and bear in mind roque was only 25 when she wrote this she had a lot more writing ahead of her gotta say though mate land of the ladies eh land of the well, ladies <laughs> i don't think we last five minutes in the land of the ladies ryan let's be honest but yeah she didn't just write either she set up her own school for muslim girls she really put her money where her mouth was and she was an activist she co-founded the bengali muslim women's association she worked really her whole life towards improving women's education empowerment and economic independence right up until her death on the 10th of december 1932 at the age of 52 oh she died young 
relatively young, but she she packed it in there. I'd say if I had half her life, I would be pretty pleased with myself. Uh, so yeah, Begum Rakeo was a pioneer feminist. She wouldn't stay in the role she was assigned. She strayed from her given path. And in doing so, she became an inspiration to people to this day. I was certainly inspired by her life. And in fact, every year in Bangladesh, the 9th of December is celebrated as Rakeo Day. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, good oh, for her. And on the 9th of December, 2017, Google celebrated her 137th birthday with a Google Doodle. Was it a flying car? I don't think it had the flying car on. But anyway, here's to Begum Rakea, the one who strayed. All right, boys, we're agreed. After dark, we move out. All right. We'll be free of the oppression of Ladyland. Yeah. After all, us men deserve better than to be treated like second-class citizens, locked away like cattle just for the pleasure of women. Yeah. It's time for us to break our shackles and start a land where the men are in charge again. Sure. Freedom. I, for one, am sick of them lauding their scientific advancements over us. Yes, indeed. I mean, who needs cheap and plentiful solar power? Well, yeah, I guess. And who wants to work for just two hours a day? Sorry, what? That's right, the ladies just work two hours a day. Come the revolution, we could get that back to eight hours every day. Maybe more. Oh, yay? Let us be in charge. Let us take out the trash manage the paperwork, let us allocate resources, mow the lawns, administer the courts, change the light bulbs, maintain an effective apparatus of state, and open the tightly secured jars. Yeah. And let the women see what it's like to be locked up, just weighted on hand and foot, three meals a day supplied and only visited when it's time for sex. Right. Let us get back to the old ways, men. We want freedom. Freedom. Yeah. So after dark, we move out. Brother, don't you think it'll be almost, I don't know, too dark after dark? Well, I suppose it could be. And the ladies are cooking curry for tonight's dinner. Ooh, curry night. You make a good point, brother. And we did say we were going to play football and watch movies tonight. Oh, yes, the Star Trek marathon. That is an excellent point. I mean, perhaps we should just wait until tomorrow. You know, when we're better prepared. Yes, yes, that is a good idea, brother. Freedom! Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Okay, Ryan, are you ready for your third person? I'm sad. This is the final one of nine. It it is the... The f- <laughs> I'd spent quite a long time going, can I count the sister and the brother and the father and try and get it up to nine people? <laughs> and it was so forced that I thought, let's just go this way. No, I love I love this mechanism. It's good. So what's this one? This is the one who stays. Oh, okay. That's kind of cool. Yeah. So our next amazing Bangladeshi is the one who stayed. Uh, he stayed the course despite the obstacles that were put in his way. And in fact, his work is stayed relevant right up to today. And his name is Sir Jagadish Chandra Bose. Did he create create the headphones well no he has nothing to do with the headphones and yet he is very closely connected because he was a very key part of the invention of radio oh okay so chandra bose was born on the 30th of november 1858 in munshigunj just outside dakar the capital okay that's a great name by the way for a place yeah it's great isn't it (laughs) he was again from a fairly well-to-do family but he was not sent to a fancy school to learn in english which he might be expected to do he was sent to a bengali speaking school and there he learned alongside people from all walks of life and this set him in good stead for being a pretty decent guy which bore him well in the rest of his life he says it was because of my childhood friendship with them meaning the other boys of different backgrounds that i could never feel that there were creatures who might be labeled low caste Mm. so bose was a bright kid it must be said and at the age of 18 he passed the exam for the university of calcutta now his original plan was to join the civil service which his dad was in but his dad was dead against it saying his son should quote rule nobody but himself and he encouraged him to become a scientist instead i like the bangladesh people they're very smart they kick ass don't they so chandra bose then goes to england to study initially medicine at the university of london but he had to quit that because he had health problems which were possibly due to the chemicals that he was using in the labs so instead his brother-in-law who was and there was i had a slight misunderstanding when i was researching this his brother-in-law was the first indian wrangler at the university of cambridge what does that mean well i thought an indian wrangler was possibly somebody who organized the indian students or something but no a wrangler is somebody who gets like a first in maths or something like a high scoring student is a wrangler and he was the first wrangler who was indian <laughs> oh, yeah, that's good. I was a little nervous where that was going for a second, but okay, that's good. I, I, Yay! I dug into that. I'm like, an Indian Wrangler? That sounds terrible. But no, yeah. he's a Wrangler who is Indian. <laughs> Everyone can breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so anyway, this guy gets Chandra Bose a place in Christ's College, Cambridge, to study natural sciences. Now, Bose does well. He gets his degree and he goes back to India where he gets appointed the Professor of Physics at Presidency College. 
Man, he's smart. He, oh, he's a smart guy. He's a very, very smart guy, as you're about to discover. So at the time he gets to presidency college, an Indian professor was paid two-thirds of the salary of a European, because famously physics is very dependent on the colour of your skin. Rules change Definitely. all the time. He was teaching brown physics, I guess, not white physics. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was the way it was back then. And then to make that worse, because it was, I guess, a temporary appointment, and I'm assuming they just didn't like him, they halved it again. So Chandra Bose specifically was making or looking to make one third of what he would have made as a European. That doesn't seem very fair. Well, it doesn't, does it? Unsurprisingly, Chandra Rose did not think this was a very cool state of affairs. But remember, he is the one who stayed. So rather than walk off or protest or quit, he says, all right, that's fine. I will do the job. I don't want your money. He just refused his salary completely and worked for free for the first three years in the job. Is that called cutting your nose off to spite your face? I don't know. Well, it worked out well for him in the end because over the three years, he becomes a popular fixture in the college and eventually the institution relented and they paid him not just the full salary, but also backdated it. So he got everything in the end. Good. But he still wasn't really that interested in money. So he didn't really have much of a lab in the university. So he funded and built his own lab with his own money. So I guess that money got back to the university one way or another in any event. Right. But he stayed, he makes his lab and he does his own research. And one of the areas of his research is radio waves. Okay. So over time, he does his research. And eventually in November 1895, Bose does a presentation, a big public demonstration in Town Hall in Calcutta. And in this demonstration, he sends an electromagnetic wave, which he called in one of his papers, Invisible light through a wall to a location 75 feet away to ring a bell and explode some gunpowder because of course why wouldn't you you absolutely gunpowder of course the bell was not enough <laughs> <laughs> you know he's doing that bell and going oh not happy i'm not happy but yeah, yeah this was a really important step to the invention of radio and this is two full years before marconi gave what was a famous demonstration of in england also i think it was ringing a bell of radio waves so pretty much he's a he's a major player in the invention of radio can you imagine when that bell went off and the gunpowder went off how excited he it must, must have be been. incredible there's no there's no you must have been sitting there going no wires no cables right it's just gone before radio that? before anything yeah. like you just had no idea it would have been total magic it must have been mind-blowing yeah but yeah, as we know, Bose is not a very material guy. So he's he's done all this work and he's invented various bits and pieces that help with this radio wave business. And he refuses to patent any of his inventions. He's not good with money is what I'm hearing. He's not in it for the money, clearly. So uh, sadly, Marconi did not have any such scruples and he patented the wireless, including an essential component called a coherer. Now, the coherer in Marconi's patent was by some coincidence identical to the one that was invented and built by Chandra Bose uh, although the oh, Indian wow. inventor got no credit no mention no acknowledgement whatsoever in Marconi's patent application wow but Bose wasn't bothered he was he had plenty more to discover he was a scientist and he was doing rocking science so he also started working with microwaves he investigated okay. metal fatigue and he also developed the tools of physics to look at plants and he kind of crossed the line of the sciences he he learned and revealed that plants can respond to electrical stimuli which which was quite a controversial thing at the time. And to do that, he used another thing that he invented, a thing called the Kreskograph, which could measure down to a one millionth of an inch movement. Wow, at that time? Yeah. What an incredible period of time that was. Oh, it was all happening, wasn't it? So that wasn't enough for him, though. He's also considered, apparently, the father of Bengali science fiction. Flying cars? Well, I'll be honest with you. I got excited and I thought, well, let's check it out. So he wrote a short story called Niradesha Kahini in uh, 1896. This was for a competition run by a hair oil company, of all things. Uh, <laughs> this story is shorter than Sultana's Dream, but... Honestly, I did not love it. I wouldn't have even call it sci-fi particularly. So okay. I'm just going to gloss over that as a note to the, he is considered by people other than me, the father of Bengali science fiction. I will stick with <laughs> Sultana's dream as my number one go-to Bengali sci-fi. Okay. But yes, Bose is, as I say, he was the one who stayed. They didn't pay him. He stayed. He didn't get recognition. He stayed the course. At one point, his papers on plants were really controversial and they said he should retract this. He stayed the course. He didn't do it. And he continues to stay in some ways. In 1917, he established the Bose Institute in Kolkata, West Bengal in India. And he was the director of that institute for 20 years until he died in 1937. And even today, that's a public research institute. So when he dedicated the laboratory to his institute, he said, it's, and this, says, this kind of sums him up for me, it is not for man to complain of circumstances, but bravely to accept, to confront and to dominate them. 
Great things indeed. Sir Neville Mott, a Nobel laureate, said of him, J.C. Bose was at least 60 years ahead of his time. And he also made it to the moon. There is a crater on the southern side of the far side of the moon named the Bose Crater after him. On the far side of the moon? On the far side of the moon, yeah. He also gets a Google Doodle. He was featured on the 30th of November 2016. That's amazing. I want a Google Doodle. It's not fair. Ah, you have to do something impressive. So let's raise a glass to Sir Jagadish Chandra Bose, the one who stayed. So that's it, the three stages of nine lives in Bangladesh during 1837 to 1905. One who played, one who strayed, and one who stayed. That was awesome, Peter. Well done. Three fascinating people I've never heard about and probably never would have done had the Dursalator not given us nine lives in Bangladesh during the Victorian era. It's why I love doing this show, Ryan. I would I would have no cause to find out about these people if I didn't have the Dursalator whipping me on a weekly basis. <laughs> All three of those fascinating, really intriguing, well-lived lives. And impressive, impressive people, one and all. Well, well done, Pete. Thank you. Look at this. Just look at this. What is it, dear? Marconi. Oh, right. The the radio guy. I mean, I suppose. I mean, look at this photo of him driving a big gold Cadillac, smoking a fat cigar and smiling like an idiot. Jagadish, darling, are you upset? No, I'm totally fine with it. Sweetheart, please. I mean, if he wants to patent my invention and not share any of the money, well, I'm totally fine with that. Right. Or not mentioning my name even once in a 12-page patent submission. That's fine. Yes, of course it is. I mean, there was plenty of room for noting significant collaborators, but, you know, whatever. So you're fine? Yeah, totally fine. Oh, good. I'm, I'm glad you've moved on from that anyway. Besides, I, I've invented a new thing anyway. Oh, that's nice, dear. Yeah, and you know what? Just for fun, you know, for a laugh, I think I might patent this one. That's terrific, dear. I'm sure it'll get you all the gold Cadillacs and big cigars you could ever hope for. Well, it's not about that. Of course not, dear. But in a way, a gold Cadillac is actually a very sensible investment. Oh, absolutely, dear. But what is it you're going to patent? Well, I call it the Crescograph. Everyone's going to want one. Oh, I'm I'm sure they will. It's going to change the world. No home will be without one. Oh, it sounds really impressive. People are going to wonder how they ever managed before the Crescograph came into their lives. Oh, that's lovely. And what does this Crescograph do? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's an instrument designed to measure tiny, minute, almost imperceptible movements in plants. Oh, that's nice. Shall I pop that newspaper in the bin for you? Yes, please. Okay, Peter, well, there you go. Another journey across space and time. But now the eyes of the audience swivel in their ears towards me. (laughs) (laughs) It gets more confusing every time. (laughs) It is my turn to be desolated. So uh, let's wheel out the machine. Okay, switch it on. Fresh. Fresh desolation. I love it. Okay, Ryan, so are you ready? I am ready. Your place, Ryan, is Antarctica. Oh, okay. Yeah, well. Antarctica. Where all those people live. (laughs) (laughs) And all the things have been written down. Oh, God. Okay, Antarctica. Yeah, all right. Your time period, sir, is the Triassic. As in the Triassic. Antarctica in the Triassic. Yep, that's what it is. Antarctica okay. in the Triassic. Okay. Right. <laughs> and your topic. Are you ready? I mean, well, I don't even know what it could possibly be <laughs> to make this good, but go on then. So here we go. The topic is... It's communism. Are you kidding me? Communism. Desolator! What the hell? Communism in the Antarctic in the Triassic period. <laughs> this is too hard. <laughs> Okay, well, we'll have something, I guess. <laughs> There's always something, Ryan. There is always something, if we've learned anything. The problem is, Pete, is I snow nothing about it. Oh, good Lord. It's going to be a long episode. <laughs> a 
Okay, well, look, there you go. That is the show for this week. So thank you all for listening. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that Pete has talked about on this show, or just to say hello, you can do that. You could absolutely do that by reaching out to us through our website at hhepodcast.com or by email at Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. We want to hear from you. Get to that email. Do it now. Write us a note. We'd love to hear it. And you never know, you might end up featured in a future show. Yeah. And if you're on Mastodon, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, you can find us at HHE Podcast. Subscribe to us there and you'll get an alert every time we post extra content, extra facts we didn't use, photos. We'll put up some pictures of the people we met today, all that kind of thing. And we're going to be back again soon with The Verdict. But until then, a huge thank you to you, Peter. Thanks to you, Ryan. And that is it. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... History happened everywhere. Hey Ryan. Hey Pete. Have you seen my bedsheet? Bedsheet? Uh oh, yeah, it's no longer a bedsheet, Pete. It's a parachute. For my next stunt. What? Why? And what? Well, I've become a stuntman, Pete. They call me the cat. The cat? Why? Well, because I've got nine lives. It's why I can take all these crazy risks and do insane stunts. But you're not a cat, Ryan. You haven't got nine lives. Ah, but I have. Remember? I nearly drowned last year. Yeah, while swimming in your clothes. Well, to keep me warm in the water. Yeah, right. Yeah, I fell down a manhole. Whilst looking for Ninja Turtles. Yeah, you dropped a hammer on my head. Well, that one was definitely an accident. And, of course, I also got hit by lightning. When you took your kite out for the storm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and remember, I swallowed bleach on four separate occasions. Yeah, I remember, and I genuinely don't know how you did that four times in one day. I was thirsty, Pete. But anyway, all of that made me realise I can't be hurt. I've got nine lives, so I'm going to make my fortune as a stuntman. But, Ryan. Yes, Pete. If you've nearly died eight times. Yes. And you've got nine lives. Yeah. But then you've only got one left, so jumping off the roof with a bedsheet as a wholly inadequate parachute probably isn't the best idea. Yeah, well, when you put it like that, yeah. Oh, well, that's a shame, because they were going to give me £10,000 for that stunt. £10,000? Well, get up on that roof, Ryan. Come on, up you go. Up you go. Look, you're the cat. You can do this, Ryan. You cannot die. Let me give you a little push. No! I'm okay. I'm fine. It'll go back in. Give me beer, 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 be